Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 28. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure to be with you this evening. We've been led in prayer at various moments this evening. And we'll pray again in a moment. But in speaking of prayer, if you could ask God for one thing at this moment in your life, what would you ask him for? Something to do with work, perhaps, or family, or a relationship, or money matters, maybe. Now, it's not entirely hypothetical. Do you look down at verse 20? Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? he asked. So this woman has the chance to ask God for whatever she wanted. And of course, this isn't hypothetical for you and I either. Many of us ask things of God in prayer. Even people who wouldn't say they're people of faith pray now and then. And when we pray, we can ask God for anything we want. So what do we ask for? Well, here's her prayer request. Verse 21, what is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right, at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, if your instincts tell you that that's not Mrs. Zebedee's best moment, you'd be right. Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus replied. 
And what Jesus goes on to show is that his heavenly kingdom is a place altogether different to the norms of our world. Jesus' kingdom is populated by servants, just as it is ruled by a king who serves. But, But many of us, many even from within the church, perhaps even stalwarts of the church, have not grasped this for ourselves. We'll see this in Jesus' teaching. And the result is a defective kind of discipleship. And so an ugly form of Christianity and church life that, that really is not Christianity at all. But thankfully, Jesus also shows us the way of true greatness. That is the way to become true servants. And so we certainly need to pray that Jesus will teach us the truth about true greatness. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus Christ, you are so much more than a teacher, but no less. And so we pray, be our teacher this evening. And may we be teachable and so forge us into the people you would have us be that may display your glory. Amen. In our passage, Jesus contrasts two entirely different ways to live. There is self-serving and there is self-giving. And so, two ways to live. First of all, self-serving. That self-service might conjure up thoughts of petrol pumps and supermarket checkouts. And if I never hear, you know, those words, unexpected item in the bagging area again, I'll be a happier man. But a lot worse than that is the self-service in play in our passage. It is that attitude that goes, I am here to be served. It's me being concerned with my position, my concerns, my needs, my reputation before anything else. That is a good description of Mrs. Zebedee and her boys. Now, of course, our passage began with totally the opposite. Take a look at verse 17. Now, Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, this is the third time that the disciples have heard a prediction like this. But still, they're not getting it. Perhaps they think that Jesus has come to be a military or political messiah. Certainly, their their one-track mind seems to filter out Jesus' words about his brutal death. Instead, maybe they latch on here to the mention of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital. Perhaps they think that's where Jesus will establish his kingdom. Well, for one pushy parent and her two boys, there's no time to waste. Verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. 
She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. What do you think of, maybe you've seen it this week, Prime Minister's Question Time. In the House of Commons, there on the left and the right of the PM are her trusted advisers. Perhaps the Deputy PM, the Chancellor, or at least they ought to be, but let's not go there. (laughs) Mrs. Zebedee is saying, Jesus, I want my boys to have cabinet seats in your kingdom. You're going to be in number 10, I want my boys in number 11. And if there happens to be a granny annex, I wouldn't say no. But then, what is behind her request? Well, of course, it's about having them be recognized and respected. It's about putting them in positions of power and prestige. It's about people doing their bidding and having all the lifestyle trappings that go along with that. It is, in other words, self-serving. And here's the twist in this. This, this little trio, Mrs. Zebedee and her sons, they seem so devoted to Jesus. They look like the keen Christian at Holy Cross or Bishop Hannington. Uh, for starters, these two dis- disciples look like followers of Jesus. I mean, they're part of the band of 12 disciples who've been following Jesus. They left their jobs. They've been following Jesus, unlike so many, for some time. And they're well taught. So in verse 21, where she asks, you know, might let my son sit at, next to you in your kingdom, they clearly recognize that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. They're well taught. And they look devoted. To see their mum here. She comes, verse 20, kneeling down before Jesus. Now that is indicating genuine discipleship. She throws herself down. She kisses the ground at, at his feet. It doesn't happen now uh, so much, uh, but it did happen then to people who are ruling. And of course, she, they, Pray to him, don't they? So there's a real apparent devotion, following, believing, worshipping, even praying. If we were to bump into them in our small group, we might think, wow, maybe they're on the PCC. Maybe they're a warden. Maybe they're on the staff team. Certainly they're regular at church and small groups and prayer meetings. And yet... They have a worldly ambition to push and pressurize for a place of prominence. They even come to Jesus on the sly, don't they? So that the other disciples don't get in on it. But as, as ever, Jesus sees through it. Verse 22, you don't know what you are asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Now that is actually a rhetorical question, uh, but they answer it anyway. We can, they answered. Now what's behind Jesus' question? Well, he would go to Jerusalem 
but not in a chariot, on a donkey. Jesus would become the king of God's heavenly kingdom, but only after enduring the suffering of the cross, where he would drink the cup of God's anger against sin. And that's the reference there in verse 22. In fact, he would be crowned king because he drank the cup of suffering. And and Jesus is showing that there is no other route. There is no fast track to the top. You want to be with me at my left and my right, really? So you're saying you're up for suffering horribly like me? Really? Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answer. Don't they sound devoted? And how easy it is for me to say, oh, Jesus, I will follow you wherever when it's not costing me. In fact, they can't. And soon later, when Jesus drained the cup of God's wrath, they had fled the scene for safety. Now, having said that, that's where they're at at this moment in time. But one day, things will be different. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. One day, they won't be so self-serving. One day they will learn the way of the cross. One day they will suffer as true disciples. But on this day, they need to drop this obsession with the place of glory. Verse 23, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. Now, meanwhile, the other disciples show that they are not a blind bit different. Verse 24, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, what is their problem? Well, it's only that those other two stole the march on them, isn't it? They're thinking, why don't I think of that? There are only two thrones. All this is no different, of course, to what is going on all around us. The desire to dominate, the push, pressure to push for a place of prominence or power or prestige. It's often there at school with the playground bullies. It's that young, isn't it? And the ambitious teachers. (laughs) It's often there in the workplace, isn't it? With people jostling for position, always one eye on the next rung above them with the other eye on who's coming up behind, giving them a kick if they can. And, and don't miss this, it's often here in the church, amongst people who do a good job of looking devout and decent. People like me. And so it appears amongst the hierarchy and established denominations. Bishops are enthroned and enrobed, given crowns. In a few weeks, I'll be visiting a bishop who lives in a palace. And he's not the only one. They sit in, of course, the house of lords. There is a kind of careerist mentality. It's not everywhere, of course. But where it is, it's ugly. And it puts us all right off, and it should. It is not what Jesus calls for. 
But we see it too amongst keen Christians at, 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 at theological college, people training for ministry. One of the principles of one of the leading and best Bible teaching colleges in the world was asked this, what do you most want to change about the college? And he said, yeah, they're so competitive when they come in. They want to gain a position of prominence through their studies, not to serve. You see it too in our own attitudes, don't we? It is quite possible to look the part, to be apparently Bible-believing people, but at the same time, to hold firmly to our desire for public approval, family recognition, career development, and the comfort and security and money that come with those things. What proportion of our thoughts are taken up with how we appear to others, what we can do to look better, even amongst us here at the church. We just innately, don't we think, I want status and respect and significance. I want to be known and admired. It's usually unspoken. It's often disguised. It's very often there. I wonder how you arrived here this evening. I wonder how I did too. I don't mean the mode of transport. <laughs> I mean your attitude. Looking to serve or sitting where you're most comfortable. Speaking with people you're most comfortable speaking with. Expecting to sit back while a bunch of people serve you. Always though hoping that people might notice you and your position before others will be advanced. And our passage shows us one particular place in Christian life where we can see it. Because of course again in verse 21, we're seeing the prayer life of Zebedee's family. And this prayer is entirely worldly, isn't it? Who's at the center? They are. What do they want? Something for us. What's the subject? Advancement. In, in a worldly kind of way. How worldly are my prayers? Don't so many of them boil down to, God, give me what I want. And do the same for the people I love. Give me what I want. The right job. A good wage. A decent house. Successful children. Good health. Give me what I want. Jesus asks the diagnostic question we need. Verse 20. What is it that you want? What do we say to that deep down? It said if you want to understand a person, ask them about their daydreams. Zebedee's family just giving voice to their daydreams, aren't they? The other disciples would have done the same if they got there first. And even if we don't ask it so bluntly, would you and I have asked for anything different? Well, Jesus rebukes his disciples for their ugly, self-serving way of life. And, and he does the same for us. Look down to verse 24. As his disciples fall out with each other, Jesus steps in. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. 
there has actually been a backlash against self-service checkouts. A recent article reported that over £486 million worth of products are abandoned in the bagging area of self-scan machines every year. Half of people say they abandoned the stuff they'd intended to buy because, quote, it wouldn't scan and I got frustrated. I don't care what you think about self-service checkouts. But what does matter a lot is our thoughts on the self-serving way of life. We must abandon it. Jesus says to us, there it is, beginning of verse 26, not so with you. Greatness is not a life of self-serving. It's a life of self-giving. And this is the other way to live. Verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. This is how the world works. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. The word for servant means someone whose activities are not directed by their own interests, but by the interests of another. Let's try to say that again. Someone whose activities are not directed by their own interests, but by the interests of another. And that is to be everyone who follows Jesus. People whose activities are not direct. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Servants and slaves. We must not miss that. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. A slave belongs to another. A slave has no rights of their own. And that's the attitude followers of Jesus must adopt. We don't stand on our pedestal, demand our rights. We don't belong to ourselves. Our lives are not ours to do with how we want. We belong to Jesus. Wonderfully, he bought us. And we belong to his people. And Jesus wants us to live to serve him and others as a way of life. Now, look, I know this is challenging. But just, is it not also beautiful? Jesus wants people who keep asking the question, how can I help others be enriched? How can I help others be enhanced? How can I help others be emboldened? And there, that kind of person is truly great, aren't they? I guess that some amongst us might think that being a servant and a slave is beneath our station. Well, thank God he didn't think the same. Verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here is the supreme model of the Christian life. When Jesus calls himself the son of man there, he's thinking of a prediction in the Old Testament. It's there in the book of Daniel. We heard about it just earlier. And it speaks of one like a son of man who would receive from God, listen to this, an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, a kingdom That will never be destroyed. Well, that is Jesus. And yet even this man, who would be so great, who would be destined to inherit the universe, 
didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to serve by paying the ultimate price of his life. What an example he is to us. Now looking a bit more closely at the portrait of the servant that Jesus gives us, there are two things I want to highlight about the life he calls us to. This servant-slave life. One is that it's not occasional. The idea isn't to say, you know, I've done my service for the day, now I can stand down and serve myself. I need a bit of me time. No, a servant, a slave, doesn't stand down. Jesus wants people who ask about all they do. How can we serve Jesus and others? We're going on holiday. Who can we serve? How can we serve Jesus? Who can we take with us? We buy our new car. How can we serve Jesus and others? Where can we live? Little best serve Jesus and others. How should we spend the weekend? Well, what'll best serve Jesus and others? I'm at work. How can I be serving Jesus and others? I get home after a long day. How can I be serving Jesus and others? I've got a newborn baby. How can I be serving Jesus and others? I'm in a retirement home. How can I be serving Jesus and and others? I'm, I'm young and single. How can I be serving Jesus and others? It's a Sunday evening. How can I be serving Jesus and others? It's a Monday morning. How can I be serving Jesus and others? It's, it's Christmas day. How can I be serving Jesus? It's Boxing Day. How can I be serving Jesus and others? It's not an occasional question when I feel I've got some energy. It's to be a constant question. How can I be serving Jesus and others? And there's one more aspect of this portrait. Jesus' picture shows someone who isn't compromised in their service. I... I'll let you into a secret. I often do things that look self-giving, but in fact are another form of self-service. Now, the non-Christian world has latched onto this type of serving. There's a book on leadership that quotes a CEO type, and he's talking about bringing servant leadership into the business. And he says this, Money-making enterprise embrace values like respect, humility, relationship, integrity, and service... Because by helping people feel more appreciated and valued, they'll be more committed to the enterprise. And this in turn will lead to more sales and productivity. So if pretending to care will lead to greater profits, let's give it a try. End quote. That's serving with self-interest, isn't it? Or another example. Queen were interviewed in July 1985 as they prepared for that massive Live Aid concert. They were asked... It's a good question. Do you want to be involved because you support the cause and want to do your bit? Or because it's such a unique event that you can't afford to miss out, in a way? They paused. Good question, they kind of all said. Well, to answer that honestly, Freddie Mercury said, it's a bit of both. There is all the difference in the world between wanting to serve Jesus... And wanting to be seen to serve Jesus. And Jesus longs for servants who are free from self-interest. And you can spot such a person because for one thing, they do it, they serve, even when no one else 
knows it. Some time ago at a theological college in North London, they had a period of low money and therefore they couldn't afford enough cleaners. And so the principal of the college, Morris Wood, asked the students if anyone would volunteer to take on the cleaning duties. A few of the rotors were filled, but not not the one for the loose. You know, these, these students are very busy and important. They've got study to do. And, well, the net effect is that no one volunteered for that job. And yet for a whole term, the loose did get cleaned. Because unbeknown to anyone, at six in the morning, every morning, Morris Wood himself got down to clean the loose. All the students were busy rising upwards. Morris Wood was willing to drop downwards. And there was true greatness. Now, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful portrait, isn't it? Which of us serves with absolute selflessness? Selfishness keeps kip- kicking into all I do. Even the noblest thing, even as I preach the word of God, there are thoughts of self-interest in play. What are you thinking of me? Jesus is the only person who served 100% selflessly. And so you might think that what Jesus is calling for will only be possible in heaven. That is worth pausing on for a moment. You see, heaven is ruled by a servant king. Christians look forward to heaven most of all. And heaven is looking is, is served by a servant king and is peopled by those who have learned to serve. And until we've grasped that the end point of where we seek to go as we follow Jesus is a place of service, I think our discipleship will always be defective. But what is your view of heaven? What kind of place do you imagine it to be? I think for too long, for me, it was kind of like the Islamic view. It's kind of like, you know, I I suffer now, but everything I've had to restrain back in this life, it'll be given me a thousandfold in heaven. I'll be just wonderfully kicking back. But breaking into all of that is, is all this talk of the cross. Just as the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Heaven will be ruled by a servant, the ultimate servant. And so heaven isn't a place where people fight and jostle and stab one another in the back or secretly look out for self-interest. And if that's the case, then neither should outposts of heaven be like that. Places like this. We follow a servant king now. And so now he commands Christians and churches to be like him, slaves and servants. One day we will be perfectly, but, but how, how about now? How is it that we can move towards what we will be on that day? You might think it would take an almighty act to make us truly great. And you, you'd be right. How can a stubborn donkey like me be shifted? Look, we've seen the two ways to live, self-service and self-giving. Now and finally, let's see the one key to greatness, the self-giving of the Son. This is the one key to greatness, and it's the self-giving of the Son, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why did he, he the son of man, take the path of self-sacrifice to Jerusalem, to the cross? Because that is where he must go to pay a ransom for captives. A ransom which can only be met in his death. Every so often you hear some scary news about a kidnapping or a hijacking of like a boat or something like that. And the captors very often demand a ransom. Worse even than what we see in the news is what Jesus sees as he looks at humankind. All of us, by nature, held in hostage in our self-serving attitude, which is rebellion against God, unable to escape, unable to pay the ransom to secure our freedom. But Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to pay it for us. The price that could secure freedom from sin. He would give his life as a ransom for many. And one big question of this part of Matthew is, how does someone enter the kingdom of heaven? And and here is the answer. One man dying in our place as our substitute to secure our forgiveness and our freedom. Now that is very wonderful. And this is the place to go if we know we have nothing to do with Jesus at the moment. If we're here tonight in that category, we must be ransomed by him. We must come to him and become one of the many. The end of the verse there. But what then? And what if we are ransomed people? Well, we're to be slaves and servants like our king. But how? (laughs) And the same place we're saved from self-serving is the place we find power to be other people serving. This is our one key. One writer put it like this. At the source of all Christian service in the world is the crucified and risen Lord who died to liberate us into such service. You see, now that we are ransomed, where do we now stand? We're freed from rebellion against God to belong to God now and forever. Now that we're, we're ransomed then, we have a, an incredible status as the people of God such that we don't need to grasp at status anymore. I don't need to worry anymore what you think of me because I belong to God. I've been served by Jesus. In him I have it all. Do we see what this means? In Christ we can give and give and give and serve self-sacrificially and not lose out. I always have it all in Jesus. A couple of years ago, let me try and Illustrate. A couple of years ago, it was announced 
the boss of a big insurance firm was, was retiring. And uh, he decided to give a gift of a thousand pounds to each of his workers. I think uh, they had to have been there for um, uh, a minimum of a, of a year, you know, not, you know, the intern who started last week or whatever. Well, that would personally cost him seven million pounds. Okay, they've got the people around the world working with seven million pounds. Well, I googled it. Um, uh, how much is, I won't say who, you know, how much is this man worth? Seven hundred and forty-nine million pounds. You can give away seven million with a smile on your face when you've got a bank balance like that, can't you? Friends, we've got a bank balance like that. Now, of course, not at the ATM, but in what matters? In Jesus, in our souls, for eternity, we're rich. So we can live a life of self-giving and not lose out. How then can we change from being self-serving idiots like me to being self-giving great people like Jesus? Well, first he must serve us. He must ransom us. But then as we grasp his example to us, his service of us, then we will change. More and more we will then serve with fewer selfish motives and more selfless motives, displaying more and more true greatness. And more and more, then the church will be the beautiful people we, we will be when Jesus returns in eternity. Now look, in, in all this, it, it seems to me we need to think our, rethink our usage of great. I call a lot of things great. You know, like a last gasp England win. A friend getting promoted or whatever it might be. And, and of course that's fine. Let's not get too pernickety about this. But, but let's also recognize how Jesus defines true greatness. It's not determined by someone's achievements. Oh, you got promotion. Oh, great. Oh, okay. It's not defined by just someone's achievements or abilities or their experience or their age or their position, but by their posture. True greatness is seen in those who serve Jesus and serve others and keep on asking that question about all they do. It's, it's probably not flashy, but would you just imagine that Bishop Hannington were a people truly great. A people who were after, before the service, looking to serve. So in conversation, listening, asking, being genuinely interested in, in, in other people and, and looking to follow up on perhaps anything that they can and what they've heard of that person. How can we, how can I serve you? Imagine you know, it's the small group member visiting an elderly member of the congregation at home week by week, even when it means altering other commitments. Imagine we're a people who are gladly looking to do the practical tasks, clearing up after the mums and tots group or whatever it might be. People who go to sit with the newcomers at church to happily serve them, even if it means not being with their mates who they're comfortable with. It's a people who, when they're out in the workplace, bend over backwards to happily serve others, even when they're busy. It's It's the dads amongst us leaving our jobs and all that's familiar to move our families across the country to a stronger local church. 
because because we're we're servants of the king and that's what matters hopefully there'll be a few who move their families to somewhere like this I guess a Christian who doesn't organize their diary around what, around what they'll find found uncomfortable. It's the people who organize their diaries around serving others. Would you just imagine that beautiful greatness? Look, I hope it's what we want for ourselves, for our kids, for our friends, for our church. And so if you could ask God for one thing, what would you ask for? I hope the answer isn't glory or anything like it. I hope now the answer is grace. Grace to be a servant and a slave, just like the Son of Man. It's not often I hear that prayer request in a small group or whatever. But as we pray it and keep praying it, well, that is a people on the path to greatness. So should we start as we mean to go on? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, our servant King, we praise you that you want nothing less for us than greatness. We praise you that you want us to be like you. And we praise you that you have done everything needed to make that happen. Please forgive us. Forgive us our self-serving. So much of it probably going on in my life, certainly, that I hardly know it. And thank you that you have forgiven us by your death on the cross and ransomed us. And in that death, we have the model and power for living wonderful, serving lives. We pray, make us more like yourself for the glory of your name here in Hove and beyond.